if you create an environment, if there's a cultural environment that it's about delivering what you promised and that your roadmap is that promise, then within the team, there will be hesitation to divert from that plan because it will be seen as taking a step backward or not meeting your commitment. In, in companies large and small, the implications are negative performance reviews, career growth, reputational hits, things like that. So the first thing I'd recommend is ensuring that you invest in and repeat and say over and over, because it's one of those things that you can't say too many times, that you create an environment where it's really about solving a problem for a customer, not delivering an item on a roadmap. Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole, the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, we're continuing on with our series all about pivots during COVID, and we're joined by John Shapiro, who's the head of product of Global Supplier at Wayfair. So welcome, John. Thank you, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So can you tell everybody a little bit about you before we jump into your really exciting pivot story about how Wayfair kind of weathered the COVID storm and and what happens next? Sure. Absolutely. I was one of those kids who growing up knew exactly what I was going to major in when I went to college. I was going to BCS because I'd been tinkering with computers ever since my dad brought home an IBM XT when I was like eight years old. I think it was the first computer with a hard drive, all uh, 20 megabytes of it. I think these days that might fit a, you know, a photo or two. You know, very quickly realized that what energized me most was deploying technology to solve customer problems rather than wrangling with those deep technical challenges myself. So after a brief stint at IBM and at Google as a software engineer, I got my MBA and uh, embarked on what turned out to be uh, primarily a product career. I've had product roles across Adobe, Intuit, and now Wayfair, where I've built uh, products and worked with teams to create experiences for consumers, creative professionals, small businesses, suppliers. So really kind of the you know, pretty broad spectrum of users that we've built out products for and also pretty broad set uh, domain areas. Things like fintech, accounting, uh, creativity, and now e-commerce. I've now been at Wayfair a little over three and a half years. And I spent the first two and a half years on the customer side because Wayfair is a two-sided platform. So on one side, we have consumers and customers and businesses who purchase from Wayfair. And on the other side of the platform, we have the suppliers who create the products that customers buy. So the first two and a half years was building out various experiences for that shopping journey, things like our mobile app across iOS and Android, fintech products like Buy Now, Pay Later, and our credit card offering, AR, VR capabilities where you can take a 3D model, place that into your room, see how that fits and kind of get a good sense for that product. So we're talking about a really large company here. I'm sure you've all ordered from Wayfair if you were around the United States. I know I was on there all the time during COVID. But John, tell us about 2020, March 2020, things go into lockdown. What's the conversation happening at Wayfair? And what are you talking about as leaders there of the product managers? Yeah, so I would say there are really kind of two very related threads happening, both kind of within the company and then in the broader environment. 
So within the company, I'll say Wayfair was a very in-person collaboration environment. We had two engineering locations. We had the global headquarters, which were in Boston, and we had a site in Berlin as well. But in both those locations, it was very much in-office collaboration experiences to the point where meetings didn't have Google Meets. They didn't have WebEx links. It was, you know, it was expected that if you're going to a meeting, you're going to the meeting. So the shift from that environment to essentially overnight on a Thursday, kind of the, that week in March, and, you know, that, that Thursday, we did a trial run of, you know, could, could we even log into our systems outside of the firewall and outside of the network? Had a, a lot of discussion of, do we go back that Friday? Because we had a two-week kind of at home, work at home planned. In retrospect, obviously, uh, very silly to have uh, <laughs> been all that worried about that one day. But, you know, those were the kinds of conversations that we're having of, you know, could we even build products without sitting next to each other in an environment that had not kind of built out the system and capabilities to do so? Luckily, we had introduced Google Suite you know, shortly before we were early adopters of Miro and kind of a lot of the collaboration tools that we now use today. So kind of looking back, it ended up being much more seamless than we had feared. But having product managers, engineers, designers, analysts, and then also all the customer support folks, customer service folks who are interacting with suppliers, interacting with our customers, shift from in-person to being remote overnight was a pretty big jolt to the system. Personally, I, I didn't even have a desk. So I spent the time prior to joining Wayfair in the Bay Area and moved to Boston to, to join Wayfair. But you know, I was not working from home, so would do my emails at night at the kitchen table but very quickly realized that I should probably buy a desk. This is not just going to be a couple of weeks. And luckily, I had a good place to go buy it. Bought myself a desk on Wayfair. I was going to say, I hope you really used Wayfair to buy the desk. You're like, no, actually, I went somewhere else. <laughs> no, I, uh, I definitely did. We have, a, we have a nice employee discount, so I certainly took advantage of that. The converse is kind of how we thought about and approached the broader business. At that point, it was a lot of uncertainty. So the main question being, is our revenue going to go to zero? Because lots of governments around the country and around the world were essentially shutting down and forcefully shutting down and locking down businesses. Thankfully, both for ourselves and for the customers that we serve, in almost, I believe it's every jurisdiction, e-commerce and e-commerce fulfillment was deemed an essential service. So we're able to continue to operate. That was kind of that first real big question of, do we need to go into hibernation? Or are we going to be able to, to operate? We then realized that people like me, people were realizing that their homes were not equipped to be schools, to be offices, to be playgrounds, to be entertainment for you know spending essentially, you know, in some cases up to 24 hours a day in, you know, kind of locked in or quasi locked into your home, either by choice or by necessity. So there was a ton of demand that immediately spiked around customers needing to and wanting to go online purchase for their home. Sort of in parallel, beyond the necessities, it was also a bit of a shift where people were not spending money on going out to eat, on experiences, on travel. So they had more dollars to spend and took on projects that they had put off or now that they were spending more time at home, realized maybe they didn't love their couch or maybe they wanted to buy a new chair or kind of a new set of chairs for their dining set. It was this very kind of both tumultuous and exciting period at the same time. Cool. So when you were observing all these regulations happening, 
it's kind of like a wait and see at that point. But what were the conversations that you were having to figure out how to respond to those things? Like, how did that impact your roadmap? How did that impact planning for your teams? Who really were involved with those, those different conversations about what is our strategy? How do we go forward? Yeah, so I'd say there's probably a few areas. The vast majority of Wayfair's business is online, is e-commerce. So it's connecting the suppliers that we create experiences for to the customers that they want to be able to sell to and that we help them merchandise their products to. So I'll kind of come back in a second and talk about that set of roadmaps. Because in, in many ways, that did not change dramatically. We also had the delivery functions because for some of our suppliers, we also offer fulfillment services. So being able to navigate, how do we actually deliver to customers' front doors? And prior to COVID, we would deliver into their homes. So that was going to be a set of experiences that we had to change. And then finally, we have a assembly platform. We call it home services, but it's essentially installation and assembly that professionals come in to customers' homes and do that assembly and installation. So in those latter two, it was a pretty big shift because we realized fairly quickly that regardless of what was happening, we were not going to be comfortable sending people into other people's homes during that period of time. So we took a pause on both in-home delivery as well as the assembly and the installation services and kind of took that time to pivot the teams to focus on what was it going to take to restart safely. Things like safety protocols, things like being able to deliver PPE to our pros. Because if you remember back in March, April, May, 2020, it was actually quite hard to find gloves, to find masks, to find the basic equipment that our pros are going to need to be able to do their job safely once we did restart. So that was a fairly big shift. In those cases, the roadmaps were really kind of driven by and determined by the teams. We work in a four-in-the-box model. The functions I was kind of mentioning earlier, product, design, engineering, analytics, really partnering closely to determine and figure out what matters and what makes sense for us to focus on and prioritize. So in those cases, as always, and usually kind of driven and facilitated by the PM, but we had those conversations at the team level. At the same time, we were having very senior exec level conversations because we were talking about pausing tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars of, of revenue around these services. You know, we wanted to make sure that we were getting alignment up and down the organization and happy to say that there was very little, essentially zero pushback to say we shouldn't do the right thing for our customers. We shouldn't be doing the right things for our pros, even though it meant incurring revenue losses during that period of time. To come back a little bit to the online side of our business, which was the vast majority of the revenue, there were a few trends that we actually had hit on and were, were lucky. One is that we've been, for the last 20 years, Wayfair turns 20 years old this year. So for the last 20 years, we've been building towards and continuing to help drive the shift from physical retail to online and e-commerce. So in many ways, this was just a continuation of that shift. So from that perspective, those teams' roadmaps did not have to change too dramatically. Certainly continuing to build on the acceleration that we were seeing from a volume standpoint. But I think that actually kind of takes us to that second fortuitous point. We have gone through phases of growth at Wayfair, and we were actually kind of in that moment where we were really investing in retooling our platform to get us to that next wave of growth. It's one of those dynamics 
working for a company that's been growing as quickly as Wafer has, which is basically that things that worked for you and processes and systems that worked for you 18 months ago are basically breaking today. And you know that the things that are working today are unlikely to be able to scale 18 months out. So we constantly have to balance building out new features and capabilities with investing in the broader platform and the systems. So we had actually just made a big shift of our storefront, which is what we call our customer experience, into the cloud with Google Cloud. We were really investing around decoupling and kind of doing a lot of the maybe less sexy things, but the really important things that proved out to enable us to scale substantially during COVID and during the volume spikes that we saw. Yeah, it sounds like a testament to not having to throw out your whole roadmap the way that you plan that strategy, like looking ahead. It's not just keep doing what we're doing. It's not just double down on all these things, but it sounds like you were really looking a lot more forward in the market and trying to figure out what comes next, which still stayed true to who you were, even if there was a pandemic and you were going back to normal. Exactly. A lot of our focus is to fall in love with the problem, not the solution. So our roadmaps are generally built out with problem statements and customer hypotheses. Like everyone, we're going to have some of the projects that we do on those lists as, as well. But as much as possible, we try to focus on who is the user, what is the problem that they are encountering, and how can we solve it for them in a way that is better than they thought possible. So that allowed us to have some of that flexibility around solutioning, meaning that we didn't have to go back and do big replanning activities or exercises we could still focus on solving those same similar problems with different solutions or different projects or different capabilities. I hate that. It's an awful way to do roadmaps. <laughs> I don't talk about it at all. <laughs> no, but I, I love that. It, it's so flexible to do it that way too. I'm curious, like, what was your process too for evaluating some of those bigger problems? Like, if, if something was on the roadmap during this time and it was problem statement, but you found that problem has changed, what was your process for reevaluating that and trying to figure out what to do next? Like, what did your teams have to do and how they have to interact with you to do that as well? Yeah, so we try to have a bit of a hybrid approach around roadmap and around planning because of the scale of the organization. What we've all seen is, I've been in those meetings as well, not, not a Wayfair, I won't name where, where it was, but you kind of have a two-day planning session where you literally break down every task into, you know, or every sprint into the tasks, you put the cards on the bulletin board, you draw a string between the dependencies. Of course, that lasts you uh, three days post-planning until someone ch something changes and then you have to throw that all out and try again. That's the very like bottoms down, super focused on dependency alignment, very rigid process. There's also the very fluid of like, everyone just go do what you want. And as you can imagine, that is chaotic even at smaller scales and certainly wouldn't work at somewhere like Wayfair. So what we try to do is, and kind of the analogies I, I have around those two, one is that it's a really big battleship that once you get going, great, but man, I really hope you don't have to turn because it's going to take you forever to turn. And the other one is the speedboats all zipping around that there's a activity, but there's not necessarily progress. And what we try to do is that we try to have a destination in mind. So across each of our organizations, and I was at Storefront at the time, we have a, a vision that we set out. We use OKRs to kind of break that long-term vision into the near-term hypotheses that we have and the objectives that we're trying to accomplish. And then teams will go through and kind of mirror that same process, that if, if the process I described happens at the organizational level, you then have teams that inherit some of those OKRs, those objectives, but then also create their own that are tied to their charters and their missions. 
So the idea is that it's a loosely coupled but aligned system. So kind of go back to that analogy. We all know that we're heading to that island over there. We all have a rough track that we're saying we're going to go around those rocks and not try to sail through them. But then each of the sailboats is able to kind of chart their own path a little bit to get there. So to get very tactical and specific, there is a twice a year planning process that we run. We were about halfway into one when COVID hit. So there was a lot of work in flight. And then in parallel, we had teams that were working through and kind of operating in more of that two-week kind of iterative delivery type process where they were doing both discovery and delivery at the same time. I think there's a lot of teams that I've heard of that are afraid to go back to their leaders and be like, hey, I don't think this should be on the roadmap or we need to change these things or we need to like, you know, open it up even when you have such a flexible system like that, which is great. What's your recommendation to other leaders, right, to help make sure that their teams can communicate with them so that maybe the teams put it the right way to the leaders about how they need to change? What do you do in your team to make sure that people come to you with those ideas and make sure that they're not just holding them back and they actually go forward with them? So I found that there's really two kind of reasons that drive behavior like this, meaning two primary reasons that folks are afraid of speaking up. I think the first one is if you create an environment, if there's a cultural environment that it's about delivering what you promised and that your roadmap is that promise, then within the team, there will be hesitation to divert from that plan because it will be seen as taking a step backward or not meeting your commitment. In, in companies large and small, the implications are negative performance reviews, career growth, reputational hits, things like that. So the first thing I would recommend is ensuring that you invest in and repeat and say over and over, because it's one of those things that you can't say too many times, that you create an environment where it's really about solving a problem for a customer, not delivering an item on a roadmap. Because then that creates that space that if that item on the roadmap is no longer the best thing to deliver to solve that problem for a customer or to deliver an outcome or a result for the business, then you have that space to have that conversation. The second part is then kind of outside of that team. If a roadmap becomes a commitment and a promise or too much of a roadmap becomes that commitment to folks outside the team, then you have that same situation, but almost even magnified. An example that comes to mind is when I came over to the supplier side, you know, I was kind of mentioning that we had, that we have services, you now know it's called Castlegate Forwarding, where we are able to offer that kind of container shipping for suppliers across the ocean from facilities, say in China to the US or whatever market they're selling in. And one of the experiences that we're building out is how you enter an order for Wayfair to come and pick up a container. As part of that, you need to say what's in the container and, you know, you schedule it and you submit it, then it gets picked up. You could go back to that order screen to check on the status of your container. But when you did, you could also edit the quantity of products within that container. And the question I had was very facetiously, wait a second, can we helicopter out an extra couch? Can we go pick something up off of the, the ship mid-flight while it's on container? And obviously the answer is no. And the reason given for you know, why it was shipped that way was you know, we had promised this on a certain date. It was already late. And the team didn't want to disappoint the stakeholder further or the business team further. I was waiting for this, but you know, clearly ended up shipping something that was not the best outcome and the best result. And kind of where we ended up shifting and kind of evolving the team's kind of operating model to was moving away from this engaging at line items on a roadmap, because that's the least useful way to partner or engage with business stakeholders 
or operational stakeholders in our case, and instead kind of move up to get more high level and focus on what are we trying to achieve? What's the business outcome that we're trying to get to, but then also move down and instituted product reviews modeled after the Pixar brain trust model. But basically, I mean, you know, lots of companies have product reviews. In this case, we brought in and made sure stakeholders were joining and participating because later on in having conversations with some of the kind of peer organizations on the ops side, talking to our COO, you know, as I'd suspected, very obviously they were like, no, like if you told me that that was the reason that we could ship, you know, we could ship now or we could wait two weeks and not have that kind of customer experience, of course I would have said just wait and ship it right. But because there was not that sort of granularity of communication, teams just had that fear that they were going to be penalized or complained about if they didn't ship on that particular date. Fascinating. That's really cool. Did you know I have a course for product managers that you could take? It's called Product Institute. Over the past seven years, I've been working with individuals, teams, and companies to upskill their product chops through my fully online school. We have an ever-growing list of courses to help you work through your current product dilemma. Visit productinstitute.com and learn to think like a great product manager. Use code THINKING to save $200 at checkout on our premier course, Product Management Foundations. I think you started talking about, too, like part of the other thing that's probably impacting Wayfair, which is the supplier crisis, right? Not being able to get the furniture in, trying to figure out how to ship it. How has that really affected Wayfair? And, you know, especially because this is your arm of the business, you know, what were the types of pivots you had to make in face of all that stuff? Yeah, I think the challenge there is that predictability went out the window in February 2020. As much as we like to talk about on the product side of being agile, you know, reacting to what we learned from customers, the digital products, the other product side of Wayfair, which is the physical products that we ship and sell, are very long lead time comparatively. So, you know, we might be talking six, nine, 12 months from the point where a product is first conceived, ordered, manufactured, shipped, and then delivered to customers. So as you can imagine, having predictability around forecasts, around sales, is quite important to not having too much or too little inventory because both are really problematic for a supplier. A supplier having too much inventory is tying up cash and tying up their cash flow and they might well go out of business if they're sitting on inventory that doesn't sell. On the other hand, having too little inventory means missed opportunities that you're not able to capitalize on and sell to customers who are looking to buy your products. And essentially since, you know, to this day, since February, March, 2020, it's been imbalanced and out of whack since that time period. So one of the things that ended up positively is, you know, both the products themselves were very scarce in that kind of mid 2020 period, but also the ability to ship them and transport them from where they're getting manufactured in factories, you know, oftentimes overseas to the US, to Europe, to the markets that they were getting sold into. So, you know, as I mentioned, we have a service for suppliers called Castlegate, where we are able to do that shipping for them. We had, you know, you can call it foresight, you can call it luck to be able to obtain a, you know, a substantial amount of volume at rates that were market rates at the time, but very quickly turned into a quarter of what going rates and market rates were. So we're able to offer that to our suppliers to help them get their products into markets and sell them 
we focus a lot on how do we help consumers choose among alternatives. So if you're going and you're shopping for a desk, you might see a desk that you fall in love with. It might not be available or it might take you know, weeks to get to you and you might need one now. So you know, what are similar other desks that we can find for you or offer for you? And actually, one of the investments that we make quite a bit of, of our focus is actually machine learning and AI. One of the applications is the substitutability, where one of the intriguing ones was, you know, we talked about furniture, we talked about desks, we talked about a lot of things that were in high demand in, in that summer 2020. One other area that was, you know, kind of interesting was kids' play sets, kind of swing sets, bouncy houses, all of those things. And what ended up being kind of an interesting observation is that the algorithms and the systems that we built figured out probably faster than we would have that customers weren't buying swing sets and they weren't buying bouncy houses. They were buying something to keep my kids busy so that they're not bouncing off the walls in the house when they're not able to go out and do things and play with their friends. So, you know, ended up being very divergent types of categories that were getting recommended and solving consumer problems. So kind of alongside helping suppliers get their products to the markets they're selling in, alongside kind of continuing to provide as much real-time data as we can from the platform to suppliers to help them plan their businesses. There's also an element around how do we help consumers find something and, and purchase something that's going to meet their needs, even if it might not be that item that they were first shopping for. Nice. Some of this probably involves working with other departments too, right? I can see having to really be in touch with customer support around this or, or other people who are handling customers very closely. How did you kind of orchestrate making sure that they were involved in the things that they were hearing coming from customers during this time where we're getting back to your team and keeping them in the loop? We work really hard to make sure that product teams are as close to customers as possible. Some of it is, is that we've invested in a user research team that helps create, kind of bring customers in at the time physically, now more virtually to talk with product teams and for product teams to interview and, and get empathy for customers. Another one is we do surveys. So if you buy something on Wayfair, there's a pretty good chance that you'll get an email follow-up or a text follow-up, depending on kind of what, what you asked for, to say, how did we do? Did we deliver it well? Did the product meet your needs? Or are you looking for? I think a, another angle is that we do have a pretty regular channel from what customer support is hearing and escalating to get them back to the product teams. We focus a lot and prioritize making sure that teams are talking to their users, whether it's customers, suppliers, or internal users. For the customer side, we have a research team that we've built out that brings customers in on site. You can also, now we're doing that remotely. We have channels that if you've ever bought something on Wayfair, we reach out to you and ask you, how did we do? Did we deliver it well? Did you find what you're looking for? Can we follow up and talk to you more? So I think that's kind of a second channel. We work a lot with the departments that talk with the user. So for customers, that's customer support. On the supplier side, we have fairly large organizations that partner with and work with suppliers, things like category management, merchandisers, merchants, partner operations, kind of fulfillment operations roles. So in all of those cases, making sure that we are regularly talking to them, that we have ways for them to reach out to product teams Doing that at scale, because you can also imagine that kind of getting peppered by dozens of random one-off requests is less useful. So we've kind of created policies and processes that those teams can reach out, we can reach out to them and not kind of clobber each other's attention. 
And then finally, we have a ton of data where just the product is so well instrumented that you know, we can see what were customers searching for. Did they find what they're searching for? Did they click on something on the first page? Did they have to keep searching over and over and, and not find it? So all of those become signals on how well did we or didn't we meet an expectation. Yeah, that sounds like incredibly important, making sure, especially in tough times too, that everybody's so on the same page and working together. When you look back to on this whole COVID experience, you know, working at a company that was impacted for, I think all companies were, but Wayfair was particularly an interesting place to be. What were the biggest struggles that you faced as a product leader in this situation? And then how did you overcome them and move forward? Some of the struggles were situational. We were all learning and trying to figure out how does working from home, working from your basement, working from your kitchen table actually feel? And the answer is really tiring when you're on Google Meet or Zoom all day long. So one thing we struggled was burnout. That two, three, four months in, we were all working from home. We were dealing with volumes essentially at an order of magnitude higher than Wayfair had ever managed. And we were also dealing with personal stress. Personally, our kids were uh, not in preschool. Their preschool sent them home. And as you can imagine, preschool over Zoom is not the most uh, effective way to occupy uh, then two and, and four-year-old. So that experience that I was having with my family was mirrored across the broad team of, of folks that we were working with. So Trying to understand how do we balance life with work was one big early struggle. We ended up having instituting recess hour where from 12 to 1, 12 to 1.30, we kind of blocked calendars across the team and said, let's do our best not to have meetings during this time to give people a chance to unplug, whether it's to go outside, just even get food because finding lunch in your house is a, you know, was a new challenge for all of us sometimes. Created what we called reset days or opportunities to just unplug as an organization and and try to, to de- decompress. That was probably the biggest early challenge. I think in parallel, we've talked about this quite a bit, but kind of figuring out the dynamics of how do you interact with teams? How do you meet new people? How do you build trust in a virtual environment where you know a lot of our playbooks, mine included, I ended up switching roles from leading the teams on the storefront customer side and moving over to kind of now coming over and leading our global supplier experience, I did that while we were all fully remote. And my normal go-to of getting to know people, building trust, establishing relationships was very much in-person driven, which was largely around, you know, let's get coffee, let's get lunch, let's get to know each other. And I had to figure out how to do that with a whole new set of partners and people to work with while not being able to do any of that and having to interact virtually. Yeah, what were your biggest takeaways to build trust in a virtual environment? Like, how'd you do it when you got started in this job? I found that it actually mirrored quite a bit of, of how you would do it in person. And video helps a lot. It's probably an order, to, order of magnitude better of being able to have a video conversation or a video chat. Not too much back to that Zoom fatigue kind of issue, but for the right conversations, being able to see someone else, sure, there's a little bit of a delay. Sure, they're either a tiny icon on your screen or a massive kind of face on, on your screen, depending on how zoomed in you are. But that kind of interpersonal connection, even if through a computer screen, was really valuable. I think at the end of the day, it came down to, you know, what are you saying? What are you doing? Meaning, are you saying the things that are reinforcing what the company values, what the team values are? 
In Wayfair's case, it was around putting our customers first, putting our suppliers first, solving for them. And then more importantly, do your actions mirror that? Do the things that you do, do the things that you are driving and encouraging your team to do mirror what you're saying? Because you know the best way to lose trust and lose credibility is to not fulfill on the words that you're saying, not fulfill on the promises that you're making. So it ended up being in many ways, very similar to how we would do it in person, though a very uh, different experience. I think that's really good advice thinking about it too. It does mirror virtually in person. It sucks that you can't just like take a walk to go get coffee. But I find that a lot of people too just get on the on the Zoom call or whatever call and they just dive in. It's like, let's get down to business. I don't want to be here on it anymore. But taking that time to really like connect with somebody, understand a little bit more about them. You know, I'm sure that really helps, especially when you're in new roles and kicking it off. So thanks for sharing that with us. Wayfair too is in an interesting position now that I wanted to kind of close out with and talk about too. You know, you thrived during the pandemic, like a lot of businesses didn't. So you had the the great benefit of like, wow, we're killing it here, you know, record sales. But now coming out of the pandemic, when everybody's leaving their houses, how are you thinking about that going forward? And what does business as usual look like at Wayfair now that we're coming out of this whole thing? I would say we're probably uh, a couple of years away from business as usual, <laughs> just in a, as, as a world, but especially at Wayfair, because the sort of shifts that I kind of described happening early in 2020 are in many ways reversing now. People are going to physical stores where either before they were closed or they were a lot less attractive to go spend time at. People are traveling. There's a pent of demand of getting out of your house and going and having experiences that you weren't able to have over the last couple of years. So I think those have all certainly been a headwind to the business from a wafer perspective. But we also have the luxury of having a very long-term perspective. We're still founder-operated and founder-led. And you know, Stephen Neerge, their time horizon is decades, not months or years. So the broad way that we look at it is, are we creating happy customers? One measure of that is, do they come back? Meaning, if you bought something on Wayfair, how likely are you to come back? The flip side of it is, of all purchases, what purchases come from repeat customers, meaning it wasn't your first purchase on Wayfair. And as you can imagine, as the company grows and serves more and more customers, you could imagine that that would decrease over time. And with Wayfair, that's actually held very constant and increased in most and many cases. So for us, it's largely been around, can we offer customers the very best experience for shopping for their home online? And if we do that over and over and over and focus on making it even better, then that kind of becomes our North Star and our guiding light that really focuses a lot of how teams look at their priorities, how we look at the near term and the the long-term horizon and kind of look at a period like this where the demand is slowing down as an opportunity to continue to invest in our customers. And actually, you know, the Wayfair model works particularly well in this environment because our suppliers are now sitting on more inventory that is not moving as quickly as they might have predicted. So that means that they are eager to kind of turn that inventory into cash. They're more open to offering discounts to our customers. So it creates a better customer experience. We provide a platform where they can do that kind of conversion of inventory into cash and help them kind of reinvest into their next wave of inventory. And then similarly, as we think about things like advertising, things like transportation, the broad costs that Wayfair has to expend 
go down as well. So it allows us to kind of take some of those savings and reinvest that back into product experiences, back into automating things that might have been very manual during the surge. And uh, you know, we realized that, wait, I guess this is one of those things that is breaking or broke. So let's go kind of build it for that next order of magnitude. That's great. The one thing that I'm really taking away from your whole story here too, and you've mentioned it several times, so I just kind of want to call it out, is you really talk about a nice three horizon model of strategy. You also talk about like the founders and leadership being on time horizons that are really far out. So you're not like micromanaging the teams, you're focusing on problems here. And, you know, the story that you just told really kind of shines about how making a strategy like that, making something that's long lasting and long term and looking forward and evaluating that and not not so detail oriented where we're committing to the CEO, like every little tiny feature. It really sounds like that helped you thrive in uncertainty that we were facing with this pandemic, but it was ingrained in your culture even before this. I think that's right. It's a good way to kind of capture it and, and summarize it. One way we talk about it is that you really want to balance the long-term and the short-term. And what I mean by that is if you're talking about like a two-year delivery project, then you know all of a sudden you're back to waterfall, you're back to project planning, and that's not a fun spot to be in. On the other hand, if you're only thinking about the next two weeks and doing sprint after sprint after sprint, you're unlikely to end up at a good destination or somewhere that is radically better or different than when you started, you'll generally have iterative improvement or optimize a metric. So what we strive to do is that we strive to set out what is that three-year, five-year, 10-year ideal state from a user perspective? What does awesome look like? Unconstrained by today's realities. Then we pair that with very iterative building, very twice-a-year planning process, two-week sprints, quarterly OKRs, five-quarter check-ins, so kind of like all of the different mechanics of how do we create hypotheses, how do we test hypotheses, how do we do delivery on very rapid and iterative ways. And kind of pairing those two really helps avoid some of the pitfalls of either of the approaches because it ensures that we have a long-term perspective in mind of where we're trying to get and where we're trying to build out the platform to. But it also means that we are striving to always learn, striving to release quickly and not have extremely long duration projects. Great. Definitely this is something I think a lot of teams could learn from from you. That that's a great balance, I think, going forward. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, John, and sharing your story with us. Where can people learn more about you? Yeah. I'm on LinkedIn, LinkedIn.com slash in slash John Shapiro. So you know I'm happy to to chat there. Also on Twitter at John R. Shap, J-O-H-N-R-S-H-A-P. Great. Well, thank you so much. And thank you listeners for joining us on this series about pivots and product during COVID, which has been really enlightening. Next week, we're going to have our Dear Melissa episode to cap it off and answer your questions about everything that has to do with pivoting in COVID. So thanks very much. And we'll see you next time.